greatest sins that we see in use today is the sin of lying. Satan, Jesus once mentioned in the book of John that the, he said that Satan is the father of lies and that he speaks lies. And if you look at the Greek, he basically was saying that the natural language that Satan speaks is a language of lies. How do you know when Satan is lying? Well, when his lips are moving. It's basically uh, what you could say. And today we see some of those lies alive in our culture. And I want to talk about that a little bit and about judgment, and then I want to shift over and talk about redemption. We have one of the most common tools that are, is, that are used today in our culture is the idea that perception shapes reality. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that if we are crafty enough in our lies, we can lead people as if the things that are being said are true. So in a democracy like we have in the United States, the idea is that if we can make at least 50% of the people believe something, then we can craft policy based on something that is untrue because people believe it to be true. Uh, the communists did a lot of this. So they, the communists always promoted class warfare. Now let's say that I wanted to gain control in the church and I wanted to be in charge and I wanted to run things my way. One of the easiest ways to do that would be to set people against each other, right? So everybody's upset and they're battling each other and then I come along and pretend to be the, the savior who fixes everything and leads the way. Well, that's what the communists did. And when Karl Marx wrote about this, he wrote about the bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie sorry, it's hard to say, it's a French word, and what that was was, this, was the middle class people, and then you had the proletariat, which was the upper class. And he tried to keep those classes against each other. And he did that by having, advancing a theory that said that the proletariat took advantage of the bourgeoisie and that set them against each other. So that was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Basically, by proclaiming that lie long enough, he actually caused division. We see that in America today with things like race, trying to set blacks against whites, claiming that the blacks are oppressed by the whites. If you say that long enough, you're going to cause animosity and division between them. That's just one example of how Satan uses lies to promote his agenda. And this happened in ancient times as well as now. It wasn't just, it wasn't just now that these things happened. This happened many years ago in ancient Israel. If you look in Jeremiah chapter 5, for example, verses 29 to 31, God is saying, Shall I not visit for these things? In other words, shall I not bring judgment for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in this land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end thereof? So he asks a, a, a piercing question here. He says, shouldn't I as God come and punish you? Because you, the prophets are prophesying lies, the priests are dishonest, and the people love to have it so. 
because it promotes an agenda of evil and they want to live in evil. But he says, what are you going to do in the end thereof? What's your end game? What's going to happen after all this transpires? How can you have a society and a culture and a family and a church that prospers when it's based on lies? You can't. And so he's warning against that. And, and then he goes on, and if you look in Proverbs chapter 1, he talks about the fierceness of his judgment when these things happen. And I just, uh, I'd like to read verses 24 to 33 in Proverbs chapter 1. We think of Proverbs, we generally think of wise sayings that guide us in daily living, right? But this part of Proverbs, when it first starts out, God speaks about judgment and how we must, by the, the ultimate wisdom, is to serve God and keep his commandments and live in truth and peace. So he says, Behold, because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but you have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge, it did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way, and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil." So he's talking about judgment here, and he's talking about a horrible judgment. I mean, can you imagine God judging without mercy? And people cry out to him, and he laughs at them. And they're afraid, and he mocks them. But that, that's what he says is going to happen in his judgment on mankind. And we've seen this happen. And history has seen this happen. And Sodom and Gomorrah was a classic example of that, when God rained fire on that city and destroyed it without mercy without regard for their fear. The great flood was another example of the same thing. He brought judgment on a people because they refused to obey him and they followed the agenda of Satan until finally he said, enough, and he destroyed them. So he's a God of fierce judgment. But yet at the same time, he's a God of great mercy. If you look in Lamentations, well, first of all, let me look in, in Psalm 85. The 85th Psalm, the 10th verse, says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now, when you think of mercy and truth, they kind of come into conflict, don't they? If we are interested in truth, sometimes we can't have mercy because that's how God does in his judgment. And righteousness and peace sometimes are not on a par with each other. But in Christ, those things come together. He talks about the fact that he's talking here, I believe, about Jesus and his coming and how mercy and peace are met together and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. But then in Lamentations 3, he says in verses 22 and 23, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So here we talk about a God of great mercy. Now, we talked about a God of great judgment, 
Now we talk about a great mercy. So how can we bring this together? What is it that determines whether God is a God of mercy or a God of judgment? And that's where we come in, right? That's where we make decisions that either bring God's mercy or God's judgment. It's the response and the repentance of man. It is amazing to me when you look at the scriptures how many times you find God in fierce judgment coming at someone and then turning that judgment away because they repent. Isn't that amazing? The God of mercy and love is a God of great mercy. And it, he says that his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Do you ever wake up and you think, wow, look, I have a new day. I feel good. I, I, I'm able to serve God today. I'm able to go about the things he's given me to do. What a blessed day. Feel that way sometimes? That's because God's mercies are new every morning. He gives you a new batch of mercies, so to speak. He's faithful. The sun comes up and goes down. Day comes, night comes, seed time comes, harvest comes. Years go by and God is there faithfully working and doing his, his will for us. So he's a God of great mercy as well as a God of judgment. And if we are, if we are willing to repent of sin and we are willing to cry out for mercy, he will give us that. But if not, if we say, no, I'm going to do this my way, I'm going to insist that what I want is what I'm going to get, then God in the end wreaks tremendous judgment. So when you think of mercy, you also think of redemption, right? What's the, what's the difference really? Well, when God shows mercy, we avoid the judgment that would come, that would otherwise come. Let me, let's, just, let's just use a little uh, object lesson for this. Suppose that I am cleaning my garage and I find a pocket knife that's old and rusty and dull and useless really. And it's been there for years. If I show mercy to that pocket knife, I don't throw it in the trash, okay? I keep it in the drawer. But if I redeem that pocket knife, I take it, I sharpen it, I oil it, I put it back in use, and I actually make it useful. So redemption goes beyond just mercy. God uses those whom he, upon whom he has mercy and redeems them. And that's one of the greatest gifts to mankind. And as I say this, I think about the fact that I should be grateful every day that God does this for me and has done this for me. It should motivate me to serve him faithfully. Uh, someone was telling me here some time ago that there was a brother in their church who was just a very faithful person. And he, it just seemed like he was always there to serve. He was always there to do what was right. He always stood for right. He loved people. He, he, he was able to, to serve and love and he was able to stand for right. And they asked him one day, they said, what is your secret? It, you know, a lot of times people kind of go up and down. Maybe they have a, a difficult time and then they're on the mountain and in the valley, but he just seemed to be on the mountaintop most of the time. They asked him, what do you do? He said, well, I don't know. He said, I guess if I have a secret, it's just that I've never lost the wonder of my salvation. I keep remembering 
that God was going to judge me, but then he showed mercy to me and he redeemed me. And I don't lose sight of that. And I, and I challenge myself in that. I lose sight of that sometimes. And I'm frustrated and say, God, where are you? You know, look at what's going on. Are, are you sleeping? You know, what's, what's going on? Why don't you do something about this? And I forget about the fact that God has redeemed me and he wants to use me to help change the world around me. So I wanted to, I wanted to have to share three examples. They're all three in the Old Testament. And usually when we think of the Old, what, what do we think of? The Old Testament, we think more of judgment, don't we? New Testament, we think more of mercy. But, you know, there's mercy in the Old Testament and there's judgment in the New as well. We saw that with uh, Ananias and Sapphira, the scripture that was read this morning. How there was judgment visited on them. But there's mercy in the Old Testament. So I have three examples where God took someone who deserved judgment and he showed them mercy and he redeemed them. And, and I bring these to you for encouragement. I think we, we need encouragement sometimes. We need challenges and we need encouragement. And I find these passages very encouraging because it shows God's love for us and his determination to use us for his goodness and his glory. The first one is Rahab. Now, what do you think of when you think of Rahab? What was her occupation? Does anybody remember? Prostitute. prostitute, right. She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. She was also a Canaanite. So she had God's crosshairs right on her. If you look at Joshua chapter 2, you see after, soon after Moses had passed away and they're crossing, they cross the Jordan River and they're ready to conquer the land of Canaan. <clears throat> they come to the city of Jericho. We talked about Jericho a couple of Sundays ago. It's located near the Jordan. It's a city that was destroyed by the Israelites and then some years later rebuilt, not exactly in the same place. They rebuilt it kind of southwest a little bit of where it was built originally. The original Jericho is still there. It's a heap of, it's, a, it's a, what, what's called a tell, a hill of ruins. And they got, the, the, the city of Jericho was literally cursed because it was a Canaanite city. So let's, let's read this passage from Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into an harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And by the way, it's interesting. The name Rahab actually means proud. So this was a proud woman, a proud prostitute. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. That Rahab had to make an instant decision. Does she betray the men who have come? <clears throat> or does she not? Does she risk her life to protect them? Now, why did Rahab make the decision to protect the men from Israel who were spying out the land? Well, if you look at her, she'll tell you a little bit later in this passage. She'll explain why she did that. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. 
In other words, Rahab, you're housing spies. Bring them out. And the woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I want not. Pursue after them quickly, for she, you shall overtake them. She actually told a lie here. She told them, I don't know where the men went, but she was hiding them, and she did it to protect them. And then you see in verse 9, she says to the men as they're being, as, as she lets them out of the, over the city wall, because she, her, her lodging was at the, at the wall, she let them over the wall down, down to the ground so they could escape. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we'd heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. So let's stop here for a moment and think about what she just said. She has just admitted that the gods of the Canaanites are not real gods. And the God of heaven is the real God. Now the Canaanites were evil. That's why God destroyed them. One of the things that they found in archaeological searches is caves packed with clay jars filled with the skeletons of babies who were sacrificed for their heathen gods. Kind of the same thing we do in America. But here she says, those gods are not like your God. Your God is the God of heaven. He's in heaven above and in earth beneath. She's making a confession of faith in God himself. Now, therefore, I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I've showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house, and give me a true token, and that ye will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all they have, and deliver our lives from death. So she does two things. She confesses that God is real, and she pleads for mercy. And that's really what repentance is consists of we confess that we're sinners and unworthy of life and that God is in heaven and we plead for mercy and that's what she did did God respond yes he did God did respond and we read later on when Jericho was conquered Joshua sent the men in to bring out this family because she had pleaded for mercy So God showed Rahab mercy. But God did more than just show Rahab mercy. God did more than just show mercy to this prostitute who was part of a heathen culture that was cursed by God. You know, it was interesting, after the city of Jericho was destroyed, Joshua placed a curse on that city. And he said that if anyone rebuilt it, they would... They would set the cornerstone at the death of their first son and of their oldest son, and they would set the final gate at the death of their youngest son. So he cursed the city. So this was an accursed city and an accursed people, and yet God did not 
destroy Rahab. He saved her from judgment. He gave her a new home. She became part of the Israelite nation. But he did more than that. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, you will see the genealogy of Jesus. There are two genealogies in the New Testament of Christ. One of them is in the book of Matthew. The other is in the book of Luke. One goes through the royal line. The other does not. One shows him as the king. The other shows him as a man. I believe one goes through Mary's lineage. The other goes through Joseph's lineage. But in the lineage in Matthew chapter 1, where it takes him through the royal line, it, it uses men. It, uses, it says, you know, Salmon begat Boaz, who begat Obed, who begat Jesse. But God makes an exception. Verse 5, he says, And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse. Rahab is specifically named in the lineage of Christ. Isn't that amazing? That God would do that for a Canaanite woman? And yet it shows that even in the Old Testament, when we think of God as a God of judgment, what he really wanted was the hearts of men and women of every nationality. He wanted men to come home to him. He wanted to redeem. And then we see Ruth, who is our second person. She's already mentioned. We've already read about her. She was a member of the Moabites. She was the Moabite nation. Do you remember where the Moabite nation came from? It came from the incest of Lot and his daughter. It was a nation that God respected in the sense that it was Lot's descendants. God wouldn't allow the children of Israel when they came into Canaan. He wouldn't allow them to take any of the Moabites' possessions or to fight with them. He said, go around. They, they actually wanted to pass through Moab, and they said no, and so they went around it because God said, don't destroy Moab. Don't take their land because they're descendants of Lot. He respected that. He, he, he honored that, not so much because of Lot himself, but because of Abraham, and because Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And yet, the people of Moab were not, they didn't, respond well to God's kindness to them. <clears throat> in Numbers 22, we read how the king of Moab tried to get Balak to curse the children of Israel. Remember how that he tried repeatedly to get him to curse and all he could do was bless? And the prophets spoke against Moab. In Jeremiah 48, Jeremiah spoke this against Moab. This was actually later on, but it shows what Moab, what the nation of Moab became. He said, Against Moab, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe unto Nebo, for it is spoiled. Kirkathium is confounded and taken. Misgob is confounded and dismayed. There shall be no more praise of Moab. In Heshbon they have devised evil against it. Come, and let us cut it off from being a nation. Also thou shalt be cut down, O madmen. The sword shall pursue thee. Because Moab became a nation that was cursed. Because they persisted on doing evil. God gave them a chance. Because they were descendants of Lot, he didn't destroy their nation or take their land. And yet, they never responded by loving God. But here we have Ruth. What does Ruth do? She personally acknowledges God. And then in, in what I think is one of the most beautiful passages of 
Scripture, perhaps anywhere, is found in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We sometimes hear this recited at weddings. And Ruth said, and remember, we all know the setting, I think, Naomi had her two daughters-in-law with her. She had moved to Moab to escape a famine. She lost her husband and her two sons there. And so now here she is coming back home with two daughters-in-law. That's all she has. And when she came back to Israel, she said, don't call me Naomi, don't call me Naomi, which meant pleasantness. Call me Mara, which meant bitterness. Because she said, God has dealt bitterly with me. But on the way, we all remember the story, how she said to her daughters-in-law, go back to your homes. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. And Orpha does, but Ruth does not. Notice what Ruth says in verses 16 and 17. And Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. God, do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part me and thee. Beautiful passage. So we have Ruth here entreating God to accept her, essentially, by telling Naomi, I want to go where you go. I want to worship the God you worship. Did God accept that? Yes. He accepted her expression of faith and accepted her into the nation of Israel. And again, as we see here, not only did he accept her into his people, but he also brought her into the lineage of King David and more importantly, of Christ himself. Isn't that beautiful? God's redemption, God's mercy in place of judgment. And then we have the third example in 2 Kings chapter 5. This is an interesting example. I'm going, to, I'm going to be doing a little bit of speculation here, and I want you to be aware of where the speculation is happening because there are some things here that I believe happened, but I cannot prove them by Scripture. And I want to make sure that you know the difference. But in 2 Kings chapter 5, we have an interesting man that we read about earlier in chapters 3 and 4. And this is a man by the name of Gehazi. Remember who Gehazi was? He was Elisha's servant. And in verse, or in chapter 5, we have a sad story. We have the story of Naaman, the leper. And we have the story of, of Elisha telling Naaman to go wash in the river Jordan. And he goes and he washes and, and he finds himself purified, even though at first he was angry and he didn't want to go there. He said, you know, can't I just go back to Syria and wash myself in the rivers there? You know, this, this Jordan River is just a bunch of mud anyway. Why should I? But he finally went after his servants talked sense into him. And he washed himself and did as Elisha said. And he was completely cleansed of his leprosy. And then what happened? He came back and he wanted to reward Elisha. He wanted to give him gold and silver and garments. And Elisha said, no. He said, the, the, the healing of God is free. I don't want to take anything. And Gehazi heard this. And he took off after uh, Naaman, when Naaman left. And he said, uh, you know, uh, uh, we had a couple of sons of the prophets stop by. Uh, I was just kind of wondering, you know, Elisha thought maybe he'd have just a little bit of something for them. And he took silver and garments for himself. And he went back to his place. And he didn't think Elisha knew. But we see in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 25, 
He said, He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? In other words, where have you been? And he said, Thy servant went no whither. I, I, I haven't been anywhere. And he said unto him, Went not mine heart with thee, when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it a time to receive money, and to receive garments, and olive yards, and vineyards, and sheep, and oxen, and men servants, and maid servants? The leprosy, therefore, of Naaman shall cleave to thee and to thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. We have Gehazi leaving the presence of Elisha completely covered with leprosy. Pretty severe judgment, right? Because God says it's going to be on you and on your seed forever. But then what happens to Gehazi? You know, in chapter 6, we don't read about him. Chapter 6, we have the story of the king of Syria trying to capture Elisha. And we have Gehazi, or we don't read about Gehazi, we just read about a young man who was the servant of Elisha. Gehazi's gone. Chapter 7, we don't read about Gehazi. We have the king of Syria coming and besieging Samaria, and the people starving. And finally the king coming to Elisha and threatening to cut off his head, and Elisha says, now look, he says, by tomorrow this time, food will be cheap. And the man who's with the king says, if, the if God opened the windows of heaven and poured out food, he said, would this thing be possible? And Elisha says, you know what? Because you didn't believe, you're going to see it, but you're not going to get any of it. And we all know how that story unfolded, how that in the night, four lepers finally said, you know, we've been sitting here starving. The Syrians are out there in their tents. Let's just go out and see if they'll give us something to eat. The worst they can do is kill us. We're going to die anyway. Let's go. And so off they went to the tents of the Syrians. And the Syrians were gone. And they couldn't believe it. They walked into the tents. They walked around the encampment. Nobody was there, but the food was there. The money was there. Everything was left behind. And so what they didn't know is that God, in the night, made the Syrians hear the sound of chariot wheels and the sound of an approaching force. There, there was none, but they thought there was, and so they took off. And they went, they ran for home, basically even leaving their garments behind. They just took off as fast as they could go. And so the, the lepers found this, and they started eating food and enjoying themselves, and finally they said, wait, this isn't right. You know, here we are, enjoying all this food and all these good things, and in that city, there are people who are starving. So they went to the watchman and they said, look, here's what we found. And the watchman came out. He went and told the king. And the king said, well, I'm pretty skeptical of this. It's probably just a trap. They're probably just above the next rise waiting for us to come out and they're going to pounce on us. So he sent two men on horses. They were going to send five, but apparently didn't have five horses. They sent two men on horses and they followed the Syrians for a long distance. I mean, they followed the trail of the Syrians. They had left things behind, but they were gone. And they came back, and sure enough, Elisha's prophecy was fulfilled. Food was actually cheap the next day because there was so much of it in the camp of the Syrians, and they brought it in and sold it. We don't read about Gehazi in chapter 7. But then, let's look at chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. It says, Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou in thine household, 
and sojourn whithersoever thou canst sojourn, for the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. So this is what we sometimes call a flashback in literature, right? He's talking about something that happened seven years before. Elisha had restored a woman's son to life. And then after that, a famine arose, and she went into the land of the Philistines and lived there for seven years while there was a famine in Israel, and then she came back. And this is at the end of the seven years. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king, for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore unto her all that was hers, and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. Now, here's where the speculation comes in. How can we find Gehazi, who was cursed in chapter 5 with leprosy communing with the king in chapter 8. How does that happen? Well, several things could be the case. Okay, The scriptures are not always in chronological order. There are times when, as we just saw here, there was a flashback to seven years before. So it's possible that this was a reversion back to an earlier time but it's doubtful, and the reason it's doubtful is that we have here a flashback saying seven years prior to this incident, Elisha raised a woman's son to life by the hand of God. She went to Philistia, she came back, and here she is saying, I'd really like to have my house back. Somebody took my land and house while I was gone. Can I have it back? And just at that time, we have Gehazi talking to the king, telling the king about this very incident that had happened seven years earlier. And, and, and Gehazi says, look, there she is. The woman I was just telling you about and her son, right there they are. And so the king gave her what she requested. Now, another possibility is that Gehazi had leprosy and the king was still communing with him, but that's unlikely because that's not what you did with lepers generally because leprosy, most forms of leprosy were contagious, especially when you went out from the presence of Elijah white as snow. So what other possibility is there? Well, there's one other possibility, and that is that God healed Gehazi. Now, why would God heal Gehazi? Well, again, here's where the speculation comes in. And please hear me out. This is, I don't, I can't prove this is true at all. This may not be the case. I'm just telling you that this 
may be what happened. Where do you think Gehazi would have gone after he was smitten with leprosy? Where did the lepers all go? They were cast out of the city, right? For the sake of healing of all the other people, or for giving this contagion to other people. They were placed outside the city. So where would Gehazi have been when the famine occurred because the city was surrounded by Syrians? Probably outside the city. Was Gehazi perhaps one of these four lepers? I don't know. Maybe. And notice what these four lepers did. What, what was the sin of Gehazi? What, do you say, what, what would you say was the sin that caused Gehazi to be smitten with leprosy? Love of money. Greed, right? And what did these four lepers do? They came into the empty camp and they started eating the food and all of a sudden their conscience was smitten. And they said, hey, this is wrong. Let's go tell the others. That's the opposite of greed, right? So is it possible that Gehazi was one of those men and that he repented of his sin of greed and God forgave him and healed him. I don't know. That's simply, that's speculation. But that would be like God, wouldn't it? And that would be consistent with the character of God. The Bible doesn't tell us that that's what happened, but it's possible. So I, I find that an interesting example of God cursing, literally cursing a nation or a people or an individual. And yet, forgiving and extending mercy because of repentance. And I, I just really think that there are several things that should go home with us. One is that God does not take sin lightly, and he will judge those who persist in sin. So as we're, as we're looking at our culture around us, as we're looking at what's happening in the world around us, and we're seeing unrighteousness seeming to prevail, we should take heart knowing that that will not always be the case. God's judgment will be visited on those who sin and persist in sin. But the second thing that we should take home with us is that God is also a God of tender mercy. He will forgive, as the Apostle Paul said, to the uttermost if we are willing to repent. And not only will he, will he forgive and have mercy, but he will forgive and redeem. Just to review, remember what happened to, to Rahab and to Ruth? Both not only were accepted into the nation of Israel, but both were in the lineage of Christ. And both are named in the New Testament as being part of that lineage. What happened to Gehazi, if my speculation is correct? Well, we do know that Gehazi was used of God because he was at the right place at the right time talking about the right subject when this woman showed up so that her case would be accepted by the king. Marvelous timing. In any case, whether Gehazi still had leprosy or not, that, we know, happened. So, God not only forgives and has mercy, but he redeems. He loves to redeem that which is lost. And so I, I think even though we're, we're Christians here, we need to remember that when we 
find ourselves where we shouldn't be. And God points that out to us. He wants to forgive us, and he wants to redeem us and use us for his kingdom and his glory. And I just praise him for that. That is, that is really what makes, one of the things that makes God, God. Not only is he almighty, but he's loving and kind and merciful. And I've often thought about that. What if he weren't? What if the Muslims were right and there were a God out there who has a big club and he's just waiting for us to do something wrong so he can smash us to the ground? What if that's how God were? There's not much we could do about it because he's far greater than we are, but he's not. He's got a mercy. He's got a kindness. And I think we should rejoice in that. We should praise him for that and we should tell others about that because that's who he is. I'm going to close with that and hopefully you've been encouraged and challenged. And let's pray. Father, we